Amen. Well, it's great to be here with you, be here with you all this morning. Well, that was some great singing here at the end. We could about have the benediction after that, I think. So uh, we're not going to do that, though. That, that, that can, uh, you don't get your hopes up. So, um, But anyway, it's great to see you all here. God bless you all. Thank you again for that wonderful music this morning. This is the first Sunday of the month. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, we'll do that at the end of the service. So you can be preparing your hearts and minds uh, for that uh, time together of fellowship with our Lord this morning. I just want to make a couple of comments. I want to pray this morning again, as we've been doing these last weeks for our country and just for our elections upcoming, but just want to encourage all of you again to get, get out and vote. It's a great privilege. God has given us a great constitutional republic here in this nation, and it's a great, uh, a great uh, evidence of God's providence to us, and so uh, we don't want to take that for granted, and so vote, and, and vote biblical values, vote a biblical worldview, uh, vote life. You know, even our Declaration of Independence says there's inalienable rights of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Well, there's no liberty or pursuit of happiness without life first. So we need to vote life. We need to vote freedom. And we need to vote Israel. You know, the only foreign policy statement in the Bible, God says, those who bless Abraham and his descendants, I will bless. Those who curse him, I must curse. And so we need to vote these biblical principles and biblical values. So I pray that you'll, you'll join me uh, this week in doing that. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we remember the words this morning of, of the psalmist who says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, my soul pants for thee, o, for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Well, Father, with all that's going on in our world today and maybe all that's going on in many of our lives today, I pray that we never lose sight of who you are, that you'd be transfixed, on, our, our minds would be transfixed upon you and, and, and your greatness and your goodness. Father, that like the deer pants for the water, our soul would pant and long for you. Father, I pray today that our hearts won't throb and pulsate for political parties or for an election or for sports teams or whatever else it may be that our hearts will throb and pulsate for you, for the glory of the living God and the true God. Father, we pray that in our elections that you will be glorified and put on display. You'll make yourself known um, in this coming week. And Father, I pray that all of us would realize that as much as we love this country, that your major agenda is not to save America, it's to save Americans. That you care about the souls of people. And Father, as much as we love this country, I pray that we'll be channels of blessing to people around us who need salvation, who need to come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior more than they need anything else. So, Father, we commit these elections to you and commit our country to you, and we pray that we can rest in whatever happens because we know that you're seated sovereignly upon your throne above the vault of the earth. And now, fathers, we have the privilege this morning to open up the inspired and errant Word of God. We pray that you'll teach us and minister to us this morning. Give us hope and give us comfort. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are on a, in an exposition of the book of Daniel uh, these days. So if you'll take your Bible and turn there with me to Daniel 7. Uh, we made a start in Daniel 7 last week. We'll finish it uh, here, Lord willing, this morning. Um, one of the great chapters of, of the Bible, one of the great chapters certainly of the Old Testament, one of the great chapters of Bible prophecy. I want to read uh, verses 9 to 14 to kind of get the text before us here this morning. Begin in reading Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. And I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking, and the beast was slain. Its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. May the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. 
Years ago, Billy Graham had a conversation with uh, the then chancellor of West Germany, uh, Conrad Adenauer. And the chancellor asked Billy Graham a series of questions. He said, to Billy, he said, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And Billy Graham said, yes, I do. He said, well, do you believe Jesus is in heaven now? And Billy Graham said, yes, I do. He said, well, do you believe Jesus will return and reign over the earth someday? And Billy Graham said, yes, I do. And the chancellor said to Billy, so do I. If he doesn't, there's no hope for this world. And that's true. The hope for this world is not found in human leaders or governments or political parties or the stock market or courts or even religion. All the hopes and dreams and aspirations of humanity are tied up in the return of Jesus Christ to this earth to rule and reign. Hope is a person. Hope is the person of Jesus Christ. And hope is something that all of us desperately need. I think we need a lot of it these days. I uh, ran across something uh, here recently. Some of you probably seen statements like this before, but the person said this, the human species needs a few essential things in order to survive. Without these, life is perilously short. Food, without it, you will starve in four to six weeks. Water, even more crucial, can be abstained from for only three days before bodily systems begin to shut down. Air, it takes only seven or so minutes before brain damage is irreversible. And hope, no one can live, truly live, a millisecond without it. You know, hope has rightly been called the oxygen of the soul. And hope is the message of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is a book of hope. It was written to Jewish exiles to give them hope that God's plan was on track, that the Messiah's kingdom would ultimately come someday as God had promised them. The theme of the book of Daniel is a hope that produces faithful living in the midst of a, of a pagan culture. Now, is anybody here this morning maybe in need of a good dose of hope? <laughs> Probably a lot of us are with all that's going on in our world, maybe in our own lives. Well, you've come to the right place because Daniel chapter 7 is high hope for humanity. There's no more hopeful chapter in all the Bible than Daniel chapter 7. Now, we made a start in this chapter last week, and I want to pick back up here this morning, and I want to begin with just kind of a brief review and a look kind of at Daniel 7 from 30,000 feet, and then we'll get into uh, the, the new sections here uh, this morning. But Daniel 7 through 12, the second half of this book, has four visions, and Daniel 7 is the first of those. And as we said last time, you can see there in your outline this morning, uh, there's three main parts to Daniel chapter 7. We have the experience of the vision or the vision itself in the first 14 verses. Then the vision is interpreted to Daniel in verses 15 to 27. And then we have the effect of the vision on Daniel uh, in uh, verse 28. Now, to kind of get the flow of this chapter, because there's a lot here, and I don't want you to get lost in all the underbrush so to kind of get the flow of this chapter, Daniel is dragging us across all of history from his day all the way to the coming of the Messiah and the setting up of his kingdom on earth. He's taking us across all of that. And we've seen here, and again, you can see in your outline that there's four kingdoms. There's four kingdoms symbolized by four beasts that will come in succession one after another. Then there's going to be a fifth kingdom that's going to come, the kingdom of the Antichrist or the kingdom of Satan. Then there's going to be a judgment of the Antichrist and his kingdom. And then there's going to be a sixth kingdom that's the kingdom of the Son of Man or the kingdom of Christ. So this is, again, a sweeping panorama of prophecy that you have here in Daniel chapter 7. So there's four kingdoms of this world that are going to go one after another. There's one kingdom of Satan that's still future, the kingdom of Antichrist. There's going to be a judgment, and then there's going to be the final kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah. Now, I know I've read this quote a few times, but I'm going to uh, mention it again by Paul House. Daniel, he says, is a story of kingdoms, human kingdoms that rise and fall, God's kingdom that rises and remains. That's really the theme of this book in many ways. It's about kingdoms, human kingdoms that rise and fall, God's kingdom that rises and remains. Now, the first two points this morning in your outline are kind of a little bit of review to kind of bring us up to speed from last week to kind of hit the ground running. I know all of you have slept since then, and some of you weren't here last week, so hopefully this will kind of set up what we want to focus on here this morning. 
But uh, the first two points here, the first one is the kingdoms of this world. Uh, these four kingdoms that the Bible says are going are to pass one after another, symbolized in Daniel 7 by these wild beasts. Now, again, these are empires that rule over Israel. Not every world empire is here, but it's those that would rule over Israel, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And we've got a, a slide here. Hopefully, again, this will help us to remind us of this. In Daniel chapter 2, remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and it, it had this great image, four metals. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a, a vision of four beasts. The four metals and the four beasts correspond to one another. Daniel 2, the head of gold. Daniel chapter 7, the, the lion is Babylon. The chest and arms of silver and the bear, Medo-Persia. The belly and thighs of bronze and the leopard is Greece. And the legs of iron and this terrible beast here in uh, Daniel 7, picture of the Roman Empire. So Daniel's catalog here of empires ends with the Roman Empire historically. So these are these four empires that will come in succession. Now, in verse 8, we come to a fifth kingdom, the kingdom of the Antichrist. Notice in verse 8, while I was contemplating the horns, another one, a little one, came up among them. So this is a fifth kingdom. Now, this beast that Daniel sees that represents the Roman Empire has ten horns. And those ten horns are parallel to the ten toes back in Daniel chapter 2. And it symbolizes ten kings, these ten horns do, they symbolize ten kings that come out of the Roman Empire, and they rule over it in the end times. And so this is a fifth kingdom. Now, these beasts are successive, one after another, but the horns on this fourth beast are simultaneous. They're all ruling at the same time. And I like to call this, as I said last week, the G10. We have the G7 and the G8 and all these different groups today. But this is the G10, and this is the final form of the Roman Empire. And I said last time, I believe these ten horns are ten leaders because the little horn that comes up among them is a picture of the final Antichrist, who's an individual. So if the little horn is a person, it makes sense to me the other horns are people as well. So ten leaders are going to form a kind of ruling commission or an oligarchy, and they're going to rule over a future form of the Roman Empire. And again, the Roman Empire has never existed under the control of ten leaders, so I think this has to be future. In fact, I'm sure it has to be future. And, and think about this, too. The Roman Empire was never destroyed like Babylon and, and uh, Medo-Persia and Greece. The Roman Empire was simply divided up. And so the Bible is telling us in the end times, the Roman Empire will be restored or reconstituted. It'll be reunited or revived. And again, the, the EU could be an embryonic form of that as these nations are trying to come together in some type of alliance. But here in verse 8, then, this little horn emerges. And this is the first reference in the Bible, really, to the person that will be later identified as the Antichrist. And he's going to take over and rule the world for three and a half years. And I see that at the end of verse 25, the nations will be given into his hands for time, times, and half a time. Time is one, times is two, and then a half, of course, is a half a time. So it's three and a half years. Later on in Daniel, we'll see this same time period as 1,260 days, which again, using the Jewish 360-day prophetic calendar, it's a period of three and a half years. So he's going to take over and rule the world. So this world is headed towards a global government. And probably when we look around today at our world, that's not too difficult to imagine. Now, suddenly after all of this, the scene shifts. We go from the Antichrist on earth to the Ancient of Days in heaven. We're transported to the throne room of the universe. Notice verse 9, I kept looking till thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, the Ancient of Days literally means the old one or the one that's been around forever. So it speaks of the eternality of God, the eternal God. Now, there's a lot of mystery to this life, but the greatest mystery of life really is just God himself. I mean, think about God. He's never had a beginning. He'll never have an ending. He's the one who's been around forever and the one who will endure forever. And I love this. It says, the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
Someone I read this week called this a picture of sovereign tranquility. God's not up pacing the floor in heaven, worrying about what's taking place. No, he's seated. He, he, he's sovereignly tranquil. There's no panic in heaven, only plans. We looked last week at this description of the Ancient of Days, but the last of verse 10 says, the court sat and the books were opened. I love this. The Ancient of Days does everything by the book. The books are going to be opened, and the books here are the actions and the motives of all people who've lived. In fact, John Phillips says it like this, God's judgment is not arbitrary. He keeps records, not because he needs them, but so that those who are about to be condemned might face the record of their own actions and words. God doesn't need to be reminded about what people have done, but he wants them to face uh, what they've done. Then he says in verse 11, I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words the horn was speaking. This is the Antichrist. He's a big mouth. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. This speaks of the final judgment of the Antichrist in Revelation 19 when Christ returns. And then verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now, what I think this means is when Babylon was destroyed, Babylon kind of continued on in Medo-Persia, right? And when Medo-Persia was destroyed, it was kind of carried over into Greece, into that empire. And when the Greek empire was destroyed, it was kind of carried over into the Roman empire. So as each of these empires would fall and another one took their place, they were kind of granted an extension of life or time. Until finally, when the final Gentile empire is destroyed, all of those empires in one sense will be being destroyed at that time. Because they're all kind of subsumed in the one that comes after them. So we've leaped across the centuries from Daniel's day to the end. Four kingdoms of this world have come and gone. We've seen that already. There's one kingdom of Antichrist, this satanic kingdom that's still to come. And the stage today is being set for that. And then there's a judgment still to come when the Antichrist and his kingdom will be judged. And then we come to the moment towards which all history is pointing And that is the sixth kingdom, the final kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of the Messiah. And this is verse 13. This is one of the great messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. The clouds of heaven often speak of God's presence. One like a son of man was coming. The coming here of the son of man. And what a contrast this is. In fact, Danny Aiken puts it like this, a vision that began like a nightmare with monsters coming out of the sea ends happily and hopefully with a man coming out of heaven whom God crowns sovereign over the world. What a contrast, monsters coming out of the sea, and now we have a man coming out of heaven. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about this idea of the Son of Man, but literally Son of Man just means son of a human being. It's just simply saying this person is a man. But as we go on down and read this passage, it's clear that this son of man, this human being, is more than a man because he receives glory from the ancient of days. He's going to rule over the earth, and people on the earth are going to serve him, are going to obey him, and are going to worship him. And, of course, the only one who can ultimately fulfill the prophecy of the son of man who's human and who's divine um, is Jesus Christ. And this was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself in the gospel. Did you know that? The, 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 the title Jesus used, the self-descriptive title he used more than anything else, was the Son of Man. Eighty-one times in the gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It was his way of saying who he is. Because it's a combination of divinity and of humanity, and it points to this exalted one who will come and rule and reign. And it's found exclusively on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. Nobody else calls Jesus the Son of Man except himself. The only person who calls Jesus the Son of Man except Jesus is in Acts 7, verse 56, when Stephen there is before the the Jewish leaders. And he's given his long sermon to them. And then what does he say at the end? I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father in heaven. 
And when they heard that, it says they gnashed their teeth and they took stones and they drug him outside the city and they killed him because they realized what Stephen was saying. Stephen was saying Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the one that, that Daniel predicted. And I see him standing at the right hand of God in the place of authority. But Jesus uses this title of himself most often to refer to the extent of his authority. Let me just uh, read a few verses for you. I can't resist the temptation this morning to go over to Matthew. We'll just uh, contain ourselves to Matthew's gospel. But let me just read about four passages here. Again, you can write these down and read them on your own later. But in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, you who have followed me, in the regeneration, that word regeneration is the same word that means born again. What he's saying there is someday this world is going to be born again. This world is going to experience a, a transformation. It's going to be paradise regained. In the regeneration, when this world is born again, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, just as, and you will sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, look, I'm the Son of Man. I'm going to sit on a throne when this world is made new, and I'm going to reign, and you're going to sit on 12 thrones and rule with me. Over in Matthew 24, Jesus here is giving his great sermon, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, two days before he dies on the cross. In verse 30, he says, when the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Jesus is taking to himself the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Over in Daniel chapter 25 and verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. He'll gather all the nations before him. He will separate them from one another like a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus is there two days before he's getting ready to be dragged away and be uh, killed and be crucified. He's got a little uh, band of followers there with him, and Jesus stands there on the Mount of Olives and says, one of these days, the Son of Man is going to come, and all the angels with him, and he's going to sit on his glorious throne. He's going to gather all the nations before him and separate them like a shepherd separating sheep from goats. You talk about a bold claim for someone who just has a few followers sitting there in front of them who's going to be killed in a couple days by the Roman government. Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. I'm coming back in power and glory. The climactic one of these statements, this is, uh, it almost sends chills down your spine to read this, but in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 26, over in verse 64, Jesus is on trial there before uh, the Jewish leaders. And they think that Jesus is on trial before them. But Jesus wants them to know that they're actually the ones who are on trial before him. And what does he say in verse 64? In fact, this is one of the only things he says. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And it says the high priest tore his robes. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man, I'm coming someday on the clouds, and I'm going to sit at the right hand of, of authority and power in heaven. Jesus is the Son of Man who receives the kingdom. It's a fulfillment of Psalm chapter, the, the second Psalm, uh, verse 8, where the Father says to the Son, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. If you want to do some uh, real spiritual good for yourself this week, here's a, an assignment I'll give you. Go and read Revelation 4 and 5. It's a parallel passage to our passage here in Daniel 7. Let me just describe it for you. In Daniel 4, you have one seated on a throne. You have God the Father pictured there, just like you have the Ancient of Days here. I call it the throne chapter of the Bible. Fourteen times in that short chapter, you have the word throne. God's sitting on the throne. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And I saw the one seated on the throne, and in his right hand was a scroll sealed with seven seals. And so that scroll there, the only document we know of that was sealed with seven seals back in that day was a will or an inheritance. 
So God the Father is seated in Daniel chapter 5 on a throne, and he has the inheritance or the will or all the kingdoms of this world and the right to rule over them in his right hand. And a search goes on, remember, to find somebody worthy to open that scroll. They scour the universe, and nobody's found worthy. And John begins to weep because he knows that if no one takes that scroll and opens it, the kingdoms of this world will never be ruled over by God. And so they scour around, they can't find anyone. Finally, someone says, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome to open the scroll. And John's excited, and he turns around to see the lion of Judah, and he sees a slain standing lamb. You talk about a, a, a change in what you got your mind focused on. But the lamb is slain, it says, but yet it's standing, which speaks of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the passage makes clear the reason Jesus is qualified to open that seven-sealed scroll is because he's the slain lamb who rose again. And so Jesus in, John, in uh, Revelation 6, remember, takes the scroll and he begins to open the seals. And when that scroll is finally opened, you get to Revelation 19 and 20 when Jesus returns from heaven and he sets up his kingdom on the earth. He takes the inheritance. It's the same thing here. You have the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives him the kingdom and throne and dominion. So it's the, it's the exact same scene here. But ultimately and finally, the inheritance of the kingdoms of this world will be realized. The kingdom will come, and the kingdom of God will come and smash and swallow up all the kingdoms of man. Revelation eleven 15, we'll hear about it probably in another month or so as we hear the hallelujah chorus. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Christ is coming back to set up a kingdom, to take the inheritance. We often call it the millennium. Millennium means a thousand years. The reason we call it that is six times in Revelation 20, it tells us that Christ will reign for a thousand years. But he shares that kingdom with us. We will reign with him on the earth. Notice down in uh, verse 27, the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole realm of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. His dominion will serve, uh, the dominion will serve and obey him. So we will share in that kingdom. We will rule with him. That's why I like to say this is training time for reigning time. You and I are training now to rule and reign with him and take positions of authority. But ultimately, it's all about Jesus. It's his triumph and his victory as he comes back to receive the inheritance, to receive what is rightfully his, to receive what he purchased for us at the cross. There's a story I, I like I read years ago about a, a dad who was sitting watching a football game on television. Some of you may be able to relate to that these days. But his little boy came running up to him and said, Dad, can you, can you play with me? And uh, the dad uh, loves to play with his son, but he wants to watch the end of this game. And he says, soon, son, soon, when the game's over. Five minutes later, the boy comes in and says, Dad, can we play now? And he says, son, he said, when the game's over. Two minutes later, the son comes in again and says, Dad, is it time to play yet? Well, the dad realizes he's not going to get any peace, so he decides to give his son a task that'll take some time, so when he's finished with it, then they can finally play together and the game will be over. So he notices a picture of the world on the front page of the newspaper. So he cuts that picture up into very small pieces, and he, he gives it to his son, and he says, son, I've got a game for you. Take the, pic the, the pieces of this picture of the world and put them back together, and when you get it all together, then we'll play. So the little boy eagerly takes these pieces away with him and sets to work, and the dad's relieved. Now he can watch the end of his game. Well, five minutes later, the son comes in and tells the dad he's finished. He says, Dad, I finished. Can we play now? Well, the, the father's stunned when he turns around and sees this picture of the world perfectly fitted together and taped together there. He wonders uh, maybe if he has a child prodigy on his hands, so he asks his son, how did you do this so quickly? And I love this. The boy said, oh, he says, it was easy, Daddy. On the back of the world was a picture of Jesus. So I put Jesus together, and that's when the world came together. That's the message of Daniel 7. 
When Jesus comes together, when he comes again, if you will, that's when the world uh, comes together. Everything hinges on Jesus Christ. It's all about him and his coming back to the earth. David McLeod, who's written some really good articles on the book of Revelation, he says this, there's a simple but profound biblical truth here which cannot be overemphasized. Apart from the person and redeeming work of Jesus Christ, history is an enigma. Christ and Christ alone has the key to the meaning of human history. Apart from the victorious return of Christ, history is going nowhere. That's true, friends. Without Christ, history is an enigma. Without Christ, this world and history is going nowhere. Let me just say this. Without Christ, you and I are going nowhere. This world is just a a tragic comedy without the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, there's an issue that I need to address here this morning. Some of you may have been wondering about this already. But there's a disagreement among scholars about the timing and the nature of this coming kingdom of Christ. Uh, There are several views on this. Um, The two main views are the amillennial view and the premillennial view. Now, when you put the letter A in front of a word, that negates the word, right? So amillennial literally means no literal millennium. Premillennial means that Jesus is coming back pre or before the millennium. He'll set it up. Now, some people say they're pan-millennialists. That is, they say, I don't want to worry about it. It'll just all pan out in the end someday. That may be some of you here. I always like to say, above everything else, I'm pro-millennial. That is, I'm for the millennium anytime. But I've got a couple slides here that will hopefully help. Um, this, uh, this slide here is the amillennial view. And amillennialists believe that this age today, the church age, this is the kingdom. We're in the kingdom now. So when they go to Revelation 20 and read about a thousand years, they just take that as symbolic of a long period of time. So we're in the kingdom today. Now, both of these views, we all agree Jesus is king. We all agree he's going to reign, but it's a difference on the timing and the nature of it. They believe Christ will come at his second coming. There'll be a final judgment. We enter, enter into eternity. The second view, the view that I hold, is called premillennialism. That is, Christ is going to return, and when he returns, that will establish the millennium. He'll set up the millennium. So his coming is premillennial. That's why it's called premillennialism. By the way, this was the view of the early church. Uh, the earliest followers in the early church held to this idea of premillennialism. And then at the end of the millennium, Christ, at the end of that millennium, uh, there will be the great white throne judgment. Then we'll enter into eternity, into the new heaven and to the new earth. So our millennialists believe the kingdom has already been instituted. It's here now, and it's a heavenly spiritual kingdom. Premillennialists believe that it's a future kingdom that's a literal, physical, earthly kingdom. Now, let me just give you two points here. I could give more, but two main points here in Daniel 7 that support premillennialism. One is the first five kingdoms here in Daniel 7 were literal, visible, earthly kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the earthly kingdom of the Antichrist. So it makes sense to me that the final kingdom would also be a literal, visible, earthly kingdom as well. You go down and read verse 27, the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. All the dominions will serve and obey him. That seems to me to be saying that the kingdoms of this world will be ruled over by him. The second issue really about the timing here is, notice in this chapter, Christ's kingdom follows the kingdom of the Antichrist. So, It can't presently be uh, fulfilled because the kingdom of Antichrist hasn't risen yet and been destroyed. So Antichrist's kingdom has to rise and be destroyed before Christ's kingdom is inaugurated. So Christ's kingdom is established here in this chapter after the overthrow of human kingdoms. Since human kingdoms haven't been overthrown yet, this kingdom cannot be present uh, in, in the current time. So the kingdom presented in Daniel 7 is not a present spiritual kingdom. I believe it's a future, literal, earthly kingdom. It's a kingdom of peace and prosperity where Christ will reign over the earth. Now, there's a story I know I've told this before, but uh, when I was at Dallas Seminary, Um, Don Campbell was the president of DTS, and he was a a wonderful, godly man. I I appreciated him very much and loved Bible prophecy, loved the book of Daniel. 
but uh, he taught at the seminary before he became president, and he said he walked into class one day, and he told the students at Dallas Seminary, last night I became an amillennialist. Well, they're all like, well, he's going to get fired tomorrow. I mean, you know, this is a premillennial school, and, and he said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me explain. He said, last night I went home and I was watching the news and all the terrible things happening in our world and all the destruction and all the bad stuff going on. And he said, just after a while, I got so uh, discouraged and depressed with all of it. He says, I turned the TV off and he said, I opened up the book of Daniel and read Daniel chapter 7. And he said, I sat back there in my chair with my Bible open on my lap and said, ah, millennium. Now, if you're going to be an amillennialist, that's the kind of amillennialist to be. And I'm an amillennialist in that sense, because someday the millennium is going to come. We say, ah, millennium, when Christ comes back to rule and to reign. But his kingdom is going to be a universal kingdom. It says that in verse 14. It says it again in verse 27. It's going to be an eternal kingdom, not like those first five kingdoms that come and go. It's going to be eternal It tells us that in verse 14 and verse 27 as well. Now, one question you might be asking is, well, now, wait a minute. You said earlier that in in Revelation 20 that this kingdom is going to be a millennium or a thousand years, but here in Daniel says it's going to be an eternal kingdom. It's never going to end. Well, the millennial reign of Christ on the earth is what I like to call the front porch of eternity. It's kind of the foyer, or it's phase one of God's eternal kingdom. Christ is going to come back and rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years, and he's going to accomplish what the first Adam failed to do. He's going to fulfill all of God's promises for this earth. Then at the end of that millennial reign, God is going to come and take this present heavens and earth apart, put it back together again, make a new heaven and new earth. Then we'll go into what we might call the eternal phase of that kingdom. So it's an eternal kingdom. It'll never end, but it unfolds in two phases, a millennial phase, an earthly phase, and then this um, eternal phase. But the point here is we will receive a universal kingdom that will last forever. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. And this kingdom of the Son of Man is the final kingdom. It's indestructible. It will never decay. It will never be destroyed. It is an unshakable kingdom. And look, today we live in a fading kingdom, but we're looking for a final one. And Christ will be an unconquered, unconquerable king without a successor. Babylon comes and goes. Persia comes and goes. Greece comes and goes. Rome comes and goes. It may be true that one of these days America that's come will go. The Antichrist will come and go, but Jesus comes and sets up a kingdom that will never go. And that's our hope. That's the hope that we have. That's where history is headed. History is headed to the feet of Jesus. It would do good for you and for me to begin to live our lives there since that's where history is headed. The Son of Man will come, and He's going to put an end to the suffering and strife that mark this world that we live in today. Righteousness and justice will reign, and peace will prevail in His kingdom. I don't know about you, but that sounds good to me. I'm ready for that. As John says at the end of the book of Revelation, even so come Lord Jesus. That's our hope. That's kingdom come. In fact, a German chancellor, Conrad Adenauer, was right. If Christ doesn't return, there's no hope for this world. There's no hope for you and me. Look, with all that's going on in our world today, with the most consequential election in our nation's history uh, that's going to happen this this week, um, I can't think of anything that should give us more peace and more rest and more comfort than Daniel chapter 7, the knowing where everything uh, is headed. It's all headed uh, to the feet of Jesus Christ. There's a book I read some time back. It's actually been several years ago. It's called Entrusted with the Gospel, and it's an exposition of 2 Timothy where some different men wrote different chapters in this book. And uh, one of the chapters was written by a man named Edward Copeland. He tells this story, and I, it, really, uh, it really grabbed me as I re-read, reread this uh, this week. Let me share it with you. He says this, he says, I've become shamefully addicted to a television show entitled at 24. Now, obviously, this was written some years ago. But he says, every Monday, I tune in to watch the exploits of Agent Jack Bauer as he tries to save the world. I got addicted several seasons ago when during one Christmas break, my wife and I watched the first few seasons on DVD. 
I would stay up into the wee hours of the night trying to see how Jack would get out of the next impossible situation. In one episode during those early seasons, Jack actually died. It was very late at night when I was watching this episode, so it presented me with a dilemma. Should I lose sleep to try to see how Jack was going to work this out, or should I try to go to bed knowing the suspense would not allow me to sleep anyway? As I was debating about what I would do, I happened to notice the credits at the end of the presentation. Until that time, I had not noticed that Kiefer Sutherland, the actor who plays the character Jack Bauer, was the executive producer of the show. Once I saw that, I turned off the television and went straight to sleep. I realized as long as the executive producer of the story is also the main character, that character will always come out on top, even through death. And then he says this, in the final chapter of God's masterpiece called Time, don't stay up at night wondering how it's all going to come out. The good news is our executive producer has secured our victory. He's the main character of history. According to the script, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess this truth. And then he closes with this statement. This is good. He says, do your work and do it well but do not stay up nights wondering how it will all turn out. We win. What a great analogy. Look, our Lord Jesus Christ, He's the main character of history, but He's also the executive producer. This world has not seen the last of Jesus Christ. The Son of Man will come on the clouds in power and great glory. And when He comes back, He's not going to have to be elected. He's not going to need 270 electoral votes. Uh, he's not going to need uh, any mail-in ballots. There's not going to need to be any recount. When he comes, he's coming back to take over and to rule and to reign this world in righteousness and in peace. You will only be in that coming kingdom, though, if you know the Son of Man. You have to know the Son of Man to be in his kingdom. The Son of Man is coming for those who've come to him. And if you've never come to him, that's what you need to do this morning. I love those words in, in uh, Mark 10, 45, another one of these son of man sayings. Jesus said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, the son of man, the one who's going to come and rule and reign is the same one who came and purchased a pardon for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he purchased a full pardon for you from all your sins. He, he purchased a ransom for you. He paid the price. And all you have to do to know the Son of Man and to be part of his kingdom is to trust in him and believe in him and receive that pardon that he purchased for you when he died on the cross in your place. Why not do that this morning if you've never done so? And you can have rest and have peace you don't have to stay up wondering nights how it's all going to turn out. There's an old quote that's a powerful one. It says, life with Christ is an endless hope. Without him, it's a hopeless end. Look, without Jesus Christ, life is a hopeless end. But with Jesus Christ, life is an endless hope. And I pray that every one of us here this morning have that endless hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, if there is anyone here this morning who doesn't know the Son of Man, they've never received that pardon that He purchased for them, that ransom price that He paid, I pray right now, right where they sit, that they'll open their heart and receive the sacrifice that the Son of Man made for them on the cross. And Father, for those of us who know You, those of us who know the Son of Man, Father, give us peace and rest in these times in which we live. Certainly, we need to do our work. We need to do it well. We need to occupy until Jesus comes. But Father, thank you that you've told us the end of the story so we can sleep at night because we know how it all turns out. We win. We win because of who we know and who we trust, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, as we come now to the supper to remember Jesus, to remember this Son of Man, we pray that our worship will be a fragrant aroma to you and that Christ will be lifted up. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, as is our custom, we take the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of every month, and I need to remind you that we practice open communion here at Faith Bible Church. So. 
What that means is you don't have to be a member of Faith Bible to take communion with us today to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We simply ask that you be a believer in Jesus Christ, one who is trusted in Jesus as your Savior from sin. Uh, I hope you grabbed one of these uh, self-contained communion uh, element cups on your way in. If you didn't grab one, you have a few moments to go out in the foyer uh, and grab one of those for you or for your family. Uh, I will walk us through taking each element here in just uh, a few moments. 503 years ago yesterday, so October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther fired the first major shot of the Protestant Reformation by nailing his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And the very first of those 95 points of protest against the Roman Catholic Church said this. Point one was, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, on the surface, this looks or seems a little bleak. A life that is entirely comprised of acknowledging and turning from one's sin seems a bit gloomy. Luther seems to be saying Christians are never going to be making much progress. But of course, that wasn't Luther's point at all. He was saying that repentance isn't in the way of progress, but it's actually the way we make progress in the Christian life. So indeed, pervasive, all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are transforming into the likeness of the Son of Man that we heard about this morning. But this is only true, this is only true of us if we consider how the gospel affects our act of repentance. Because we can repent like a religious person, or we can repent like a Christian. Because in religion, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy. Because a God who is happy with me will continue to bless me and answer my prayers and listen to me. And what this means is that religious repentance is A, selfish, and B, it is self-righteous. But in the gospel, the gospel that we declare and lay hold of as believers, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Jesus Christ. We repent each day, we repent each hour in order to weaken our desire to do anything that's contrary to God's heart. So repentance allies your heart with Christ. It ratifies once more your covenant with him and it releases you from your affection for besetting and destructive sins. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. And it's the table, it's the Lord's table, which is an ideal place to carry this out. So in the next few moments, I want you to bow your heads and just silently go before the Lord as we prepare our hearts to take the supper together. Go ahead and peel back the layer that gives you access to the bread. Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And after he gave thanks, he said this, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread together. You can peel back the layer of Revealing the cup. Scripture goes on and says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, We come to you today as a grateful people. We come to you today as a repentant people. And the flip side of repentance is faith. And so all of our life 
is to be characterized by faith. We are people who are looking to you. We were looking to you for salvation by grace. We're looking to you for, for guidance in our everyday life, and we're looking to you to, to come and return and to establish your kingdom and to put us in our places there. Lord, we thank you for the gospel that's been preached in this place this morning, the gospel that has been sung by this body of believers, the gospel that's been heard by this body of believers, and the gospel that's been tasted by this body of believers as we've gathered at this table. We, we, we now want to take this gospel to the world, empower us and embolden us to share it with those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand as we sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Well, it's a blessing to gather with you today. If you have a burden this morning and like to talk to an elder, our elders will be down front. We'll be ready to meet with you, pray with you, uh, address whatever it is you might need today. I want to send us out with a benediction. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14, where Paul writes, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in his grace. You're dismissed. Fire!